getting through Hell Week requires a tremendous amount of mental fortitude and toughness. And I was able to do that. And at that very exact same point in life, still could not throw a ball due to the yips. So if I proved that I was extremely mentally tough and at the same time couldn't throw a ball due to the yips, then it follows that the yips cannot be due to a lack of mental toughness. Jason Kuhn was on his way to the major leagues when a case of the yips destroyed his identity. After throwing six wild pitches in one inning as Middle Tennessee State's closer, Jason was forced to build an entirely new one. That led him to sign up for one of the most physically, mentally, and emotionally demanding paths any human could possibly pursue, Navy SEALs BUDS training. Out of 135 men in his class, Jason was one of 20 that survived Hell Week and emerged as a Navy SEAL. A decorated career and a confidential amount of combat tours later, Jason is taking the knowledge he gathered as an elite level operator and applying it to the very thing that led him there, the yips. And so far, the results of his system are undeniable. His client, Lucas Glover, ever heard of him, won twice this year on tour after a decade of well-documented, shall we say, involuntary movements with the putter. Another client of Jason's, Atlanta Braves pitcher Tyler Matzik, had almost completely vanished from baseball after losing his release point. With Jason's help, Matzik took the mound in the seventh inning of the 2021 World Series with a two-run lead and runners in scoring position. He proceeded to strike out the side and lead the Braves to their first ever world title. Jason's way of looking at both individual and team performance is unlike anything we've discussed so far in this series. His system puts a real meaning and real action behind the strategies you'll hear sports psychologists repeat and repurpose ad nauseum. Safe to say, if you've been following along on Mind Game this year, I think you are really going to like what Jason has to say. And to all of you who are listening and who do subscribe to the Golfer's Journal, I thank you for making this show possible. Now, here's my conversation with Jason Kuhn, recorded together in Nashville, Tennessee, on subconscious fear, the fundamentals of winning, and what it actually means to be a Navy SEAL. Jason, the first time... I came across your name was when a colleague of mine, Robbie Vogel, asked Lucas Glover earlier this year sort of how he had solved his putting yips. And he had mentioned that he had come across a Navy SEAL, yourself, um, and he had uh, that SEAL had sort of transformed the way that he thought about the problem he was having. Um, before I get to how you solve the problem, I understand that the only way, reason that you are able to solve that problem is because you went through it yourself. So tell me about your experience with the Y word. Yeah, I was playing baseball in college at Middle Tennessee State coming into my senior season. I was not a high round, you know, a very well-known guy. I wasn't going to be a high round draft pick or anything like that, but I was starting to come into myself. I was throwing the ball a lot harder, a lot more consistently putting together at times some dominant performance. If I could string together the consistency, my shot at playing professional baseball was very realistic. Uh, we had won our conference the year before. We had a top 25 ranking as a mid-major school in the Sun Belt. 
and everything was in alignment. I was going to play a lot, played a lot the year before as a vital uh, pitcher coming out of the bullpen, pitched in high leverage situations, closed games. And in my senior season, it, I came out to throw in an inner squad. And that's what's interesting is there was really no elevated pressure or anything here. And if anything, it was reduced. You know, just throwing against my teammates. And I walked the bases loaded, maybe a run or two in. I can't remember exactly how many batters I faced. It was at least three. And I'd throw a single strike. And I threw a lot of strikes. I wasn't missing the catcher, but I, I, did not, I, I didn't throw a single ball over the plate. The next day I was playing catch and went out and as just normal getting warmed up and loose and about every fifth or sixth throw, I would sail one about eight or nine feet over his head. Nothing felt different in my delivery. Nothing felt animated or anxious going out there that day. It was just like every so often the ball would go wildly off target. That compounded upon itself. I tried to fight through it throughout the whole season, uh, culminated in throwing six wild pitches in an inning. I believe it's the most anyone ever has in the NCAA. That was back in 2001. And that was the last competitive game of baseball I ever played. I didn't walk away and quit. I kept showing up and tried to throw, but I never got it back. What did you think at the time was the sort of root cause? Did I had no idea. I, I, uh, I had never heard of the term yips until years later. But I, didn't, I knew it wasn't due to mental weakness. I didn't feel like I was mentally weak. And I think some people thought it's, well, you can't handle the situation. I had had LASIK eye surgery. I had rolled my ankle and things like that. So some guys were contributed to that. Well, your depth perception off, your, your mechanics are messed up because of your ankle or whatever. But I knew there was something else going on. I didn't know what it was, but I didn't think it was because I couldn't handle the pressure and was cracking in it. But I also just had no idea what was happening. And at the time, I didn't realize there was a mechanical interruption taking place because it felt like it was coming out of my hand clean, just way off. So I thought my release point was just way over here, or way over there for whatever reason. Later on, as I examined myself, and this is before we had cameras like we have them now, mm -hmm. you know, with VHS and stuff. But my dad came out to a practice and I threw a pickoff move, missed the first baseman by probably 10 feet, two hopped it. And he said, your hand's wrapping around the side of the ball. And that was the first time I realized okay, there's something that's manifesting itself in, in, in my mechanics and I don't, I'm not, I'm not even recognizing it, you know? Um, so I, I really just didn't know and it, and it wore out my soul. Yeah. So you, you, on the mental weakness part, and I've heard you, I've heard you be quoted as saying that there's a lot of shame around this topic. Like there's a lot of embarrassment and shame that people have about having the yips. Um, and a lot of your work today revolves around mental toughness, but you don't believe that it's a case of being mentally weak. In fact, you frame it as kind of the opposite, right? It's the opposite because a player that is showing up and competing with this condition, that's mental toughness on display. Knowing that you're struggling, not know why you're struggling and continuing to do, go out and attempt to develop a solution and overcome it and putting yourself out there and knowing that there's going to be embarrassment and frustration and knowing that you don't know what the solution is, but you're going to go out there and you're going to try. Yeah, that's mental toughness on display. And I went to BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Seal Training, which notoriously has an attrition rate of anywhere from, you know, 70 to 90% or so. And ours was no different. We had about 135 men start. And at the end of Hell Week, there were 20 of us left. I was one of those 20. And 
I still couldn't throw a baseball properly due to the yips. Getting through Hell Week requires a tremendous amount of mental fortitude and toughness, and I was able to do that. And at that very exact same point in life, still could not throw a ball due to the yips. So if I proved that I was extremely mentally tough and at the same time couldn't throw a ball due to the yips, then it follows that the yips cannot be due to a lack of mental toughness. And that's very important. That's the first thing that I share with players that I work with to help relieve them of that shame and guilt because the yips plays at the short putts and the short chips and the short throws in baseball. So it's very embarrassing and it wears at our ego and our pride and it's confusing because we don't understand why it's happening. So uh, I, I want them to know that, you know, I was a Navy SEAL. I had it. Tyler Matzik is a World Series champion who has the nickname Nutsack, by the way, for his ability to handle high-pressure situations, and he had it. You know, I, uh, you know, you look at Luke, add Lucas Glover to the list now. You know, and those are not mentally weak people. Those are, those are not underachievers. So you're in a, in a group of decent people. Yes, for sure. Um, I have a lot of questions about buds, but before that, you, uh, you've since studied yips quite extensively. Um, and now make it it's your job a part of your job is to really help people overcome it what um, what do you understand about them now as far as the root causes the symptoms where is it coming from yeah cause and effect is tough but it's I think it's based in experiences mostly and how that comes together it's so it's involuntary tension. Mm. Matter of fact, just get into the definition of it and then kind of ease yeah. into, okay, so yeah. I think it's involuntary tension. So where we traditionally have it wrong is it's, it's treated as kind of traditional performance anxiety. And the way I look at performance anxiety means I understand the situation that I'm in, what's at stake, and I can't gain my composure and compete within it. I'm nervous because there's a million dollars at stake and the bases are loaded, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that's not the same thing. A lot of times when people go out and they experience the yips, especially for me and every client I've talked to, actually, they say it felt like a normal day. I didn't feel an elevated level of nerves or pressure. As I said, I was in a subpar pressure environment versus an elevated one when I first experienced it. So that's not what it is. And it's, it's involuntary tension. And involuntary is the key. It's not a rational conscious fear. It's a subconscious response to threat. It's the predatory survival instincts kicking in. It's saying protect yourself. And the body's instinctual response to protect itself is to create tension and make things tight. So right now there's no threat coming from me, right? We're friends and pals sitting across the table. So if for no reason whatsoever, I just jumped over the table and threw a punch at your chest, you're going to react to it in some way, right? Yes. And that's probably not going to loosen up and just absorb the blow. No. You're going to make your, if I threw it at your chest, you're going to make this tight to absorb the blow because that's what the body does to protect itself. So the body is the subconscious and the central nervous system and how it's working together is perceiving a threat and it's saying protect yourself and the body's instinctual response is to engage muscle tension to do so. That tension then creates a mechanical interruption. Now, when we have a mechanical interruption or error, typically it's due to a couple of things, either ignorance or awareness. So I don't really golf all that much. So if I went out, you'd be like, hey man, you're holding the club wrong and standing wrong. Do this instead of that. And I would say, okay, I will now do this instead, instead of that. Make a conscious choice, do it. Or maybe we don't realize something's off that day and your swing coach shows you a video and says, hey, you're flying open or whatever it is a little bit and you need to you know, correct that. 
back to what you do most of the time. You say, wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. I will choose to now do so and do it just by thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Why the yips is difficult is because it's taking place in that automated part of our being. Mm -hmm. Okay, that instinctual response part that has developed over the course of time. So a very similar occurrence takes place in shooting a gun. If you, have you ever shot a pistol before? Uh, yes. Okay. So understanding the mechanics of how to shoot a pistol is very simple. Grip, stance, follow through. There's, there's a three-year-old can understand how to do it. Application is a little more diff difficult. And the reason why is when, you know, you'll dry fire, you just press the trigger without rounds in the gun. Nobody moves. Sights stay on target. Everything's clean. Put a round in the gun, rack one home, press the trigger, and people miss, not because they don't understand how to fire the gun properly, mechanically sound. They miss because as they press that trigger, the subconscious says explosions taking place in your hands. Mm -hmm. You need to prepare for it. And you get a little bit of tension in the forearms and that little bit of tension pushes the barrel. You miss up into the left or you yank, it goes down into the right, even though you're attempting not to. You're saying don't flinch and you do it anyways. Yes. Right. So a very similar thing occurs. So as people grow up playing golf, a lot of their identity gets attached to the game. Their self-worth is, is found in it. And that was true for me in baseball. baseball. I grew up very shy when I was little. And baseball was an outlet for social acceptance and to make a name for myself. I, I you know, develop an ego and identity. I was good at it. I was good at it because I put in the work and because I loved it. And I loved baseball more than I loved most people, you know. So any threat to it was like you're losing a part of yourself. It can be perceived as a life and death danger, depending on how all that's developed. And that was a key transition when I imploded and then be, being able to be successful and become a SEAL is what I learned about myself there. But I think as the conditions increase, so as you move up the ranks, skill sets increase. So it's harder to maintain your career, you know, get to the next level and then maintain it when you're there because everybody's good. Right. Right. And then the consequence for success or failure also increase in their effect. Mm. So in college baseball, I was either going to be drafted and play pro ball, which was huge for me because I want to be able to say I was a pro baseball player to stick it to everybody. Right. And, um, but I'm either going to be a pro baseball player or I'm going to be done playing or try to make my way through, you know, a non-affiliated team somewhere or something like that. So not only does it increase, it also the separation and their effect decreases. So an example I use is if you kick a soccer ball, okay, you say you're going to take a penalty kick in soccer, and you got a pretty big ball, pretty big net, and you remove the goalie, it's like just kick the ball in the net from that distance. You could probably do it. So, well, there's $5 million at stake. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, now there's $5 million, or we're going to take everything you own from you. Now there's a gun to your head. Now there's a gun to your kid's head. And you see as the, as the conditions escalate, the separation and consequence of success or failure also escalates. The central nervous system perceives a threat. You can probably start to feel it as I'm talking through that already. Yeah. And its responses to tighten up. Yeah. So the threat in your case in college baseball could be the sort of like the 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 loss of identity, whereas you identified as this great baseball player your whole life was building up to playing professional baseball, and now that's sort of right in focus right there, right? Is that is that how I'm understanding that's, it? That's part of it. And everybody's a little bit different too in their storyline, but it's usually the, a different version of the same story yeah. as I listen to guys tell me what's going on. And it's also through, you know, everybody experience, experiences common adversities in the game, bad weather and baseball, maybe a bad call by an umpire, 
an injury, whatever, but then you throw in the anomalies and things become defensive. So perhaps, you know, you come in to be a utility player and they say you can't hit anymore. You're just going to be a pitcher and you're not going to have a chance to hit anymore. Perhaps, you know, um, coaches go hands-on with you sometimes or shame you in front of everybody when you didn't really make a mentally weak play, you just made a bad throw. Sure. You know, you made an aggressive throw and one got away from you because the game is hard and you get shamed in front of everybody for that. Not one time, like you can't handle that, but over and over and over again. Scholarship money threatened to be pulled, actually pulled, um, you name it. And kind of that's kind of, and I'm generalizing, but that's kind of how my baseball career was from the time I was 16 on. That 16-year-old summer was the last time I can really remember it being completely pure. Now, it didn't mean there wasn't good times. My junior year in college, that was such good dudes on the team and a wonderful time, but there were some other things that were going on as well. And I don't blame anyone. You know, my, I placed my need for affirmation and validation into some sources in terms of entities. Mm. It could be an entity like Pro Ball or NCAA or MLB or PGA, and it can be a person. And I placed that need of validation and affirmation and some sources that were never going to give it to me mm. for whatever reason. And that's my fault, not anybody else's. I just didn't have the self-awareness and maturity yet. And that's how we learn. We grow through those things and figure that stuff out. Yeah. So these threats can come from uh, interpersonal relationships. They can come from expectations or baggage or, yeah. And I'm, you're completely unaware of them. Right. Right. Yeah. That, have, right. Hence the subconscious part, right? Exactly. And why it's difficult to diagnose. What's... Um, what were your initial conversations with Lucas Glover like on what he was going through? So that same thing. We wanted to define it and talk about my experience, you know, create a, some connection and relation and what was happening. I wanted to define it for him mostly so he understood what was actually going on with his body because I think that is the biggest thing that is going wrong out there, at least in what I have seen, is that we cannot create an effective solution if we're not defining the problem correctly from the beginning. Mm. You know, we're not solving the right problem. So, hey man, this is due to, I wouldn't say maybe no real fault of your own, but maybe, you know, there's maybe perhaps there's not really much you could have done to avoid it though. Um, you know, it could happen to anyone and it tends to happen to high, achieve, high achievers who are authentic, genuine people and really care for all the right reasons. Why is that? You think? They don't want to let other people down and they love the game and don't want to lose it. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to keep playing it. And sometimes I think, yeah, that identity gets a little bit too dependent on external sources where the verse is grounded on the inside because we don't want to be arrogant, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so anyways, yeah, we started there by defining the problem and telling him a lot about my story and how I went about solving it. And then, you know, outlining what that was going to look like for him. What did that plan look like? So we have a few steps to the practical approach. There's ways of striking the ball to retrain the subconscious, to trust freedom and dexterity and get fluidity in our stroke back. So we attack it right at the mechanical interruption point. That's how we start through a simulated dry fire. So in one thing I learned in the SEAL team's when we shot a pistol was one, I had a bad flinch with the pistol. Yeah. And one day we were training and, and someone who had trained extensively with competition shooters had asked them, how do you not flinch? If you don't want to flinch and you're telling yourself not to flinch and you flinch anyways, how do you not do it? 
know? yeah. great question. Yeah, don't so don't think about white bears. <laughs> yeah, so and he, exactly, <laughs> and we talk about that in a bit too, right? But he said, um, he said, well, what we do is we dry fire seventy five percent more than we fire with rounds in the gun to train the subconscious that when we press the trigger, nothing happens when we default into a dynamic automated mode. When so, the so dry fire would be shooting blanks or shooting nothing at all? Shooting nothing at all. Well, just clicking the gun. Yeah. Okay. Just, just click, racket, click, racket, click. Okay. okay. So, so like practice swings. I took a way, I developed that in baseball. And then when I started working on golf, I developed a way to do that. And it's just repetition, 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 focusing on a clean connection with the ball or some point in the swing where it's, if I do this, the rest will follow. And my whole conscious mind is focused. There's the conscious mind can only solve one problem at a time. It can follow a sequence, one, two, three, and it can loop, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But if my subconscious is creating a mechanical interruption, automating it, then the only way to defeat that automation is to take all of my, con this is the only thing I have to use is my conscious effort, right? And, and then how I can take physical action through that. And I wanna focus it all right where it's being interrupted and override it, but we have to reduce the environmental conditions into a capacity where we can achieve success. So what I mean is when I went out to throw in baseball and I was yipping, I never shortened way up or went through by myself into a net from five yards away or whatever. Everybody's baseline's different. Right. You know, some people can start here, there, or the other thing. Mine was severe. You know, I might've had to stand on the ocean or the beach and try to hit water, but you know, <laughs> but you just get that action back. So that's where we start, right? Where it's being interrupted and we start, and I mean thousands of times if we can. So, so Lucas Glover's out there making practice strokes with no ball. With a ball. We do it with a ball. With a ball. You can do it without a ball. If but you have but to. no target? No target, yep. Okay. And you're focusing on the connection, and every time you make connection, you intentionally reward that feeling to let it feel good. And I, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not, a, I don't not, I don't get into the science of it, but I believe what's happening is dopamine is being released and associating that action with solution. What are, what are some rewards? What do you mean by rewards? Just let it feel good on the inside. Like, Love that. You know, because that's part of it too. So when we get into the adept, we only scratch the surface of cause and effect, but sure. um, part of it's timeline crunch too. You know, you throw an injury in there, your senior season and your timeline to get drafted is now, you know, shortened. Um, but another thing is, is as you move up the ranks, you know, when I go watch my son play baseball, he's seven. If they catch a ground ball and throw somebody out at first, the whole place goes nuts. You know, why? Because it's rare. Mm -hmm. um, as you get older, what do you start to hear? Hit him in the chest, get the bunt down, what yeah. the, you know, all, yeah. over and all, all this stuff. So all these small things that used to bring us joy in the game become something to be expected rather than rewarded. Mm. And when we do do something well, especially as we escalate up to the pro levels, well, I'm just doing my job, you know? I close the game, but that's what I'm supposed to do. And I just, you know, and that's how you feel a lot of times, rather than letting that feel good. And so when you do something really well, you're, you're getting a real small positive feeling. And when you do something bad, you're getting a really strong negative feeling, you know, and, and that sticks with you. Like you can't remember what you ate for lunch three days ago, probably, or four days ago, because there's no emotional, it's not emotionally impactful. Yeah. But when something really negative or really good happens, the body remembers it, it registers. Yeah. And so that's, we want to reverse that as well as we move along the progression of the system. That's interesting that you say that because golf is in, in a lot of ways unbalanced as far as sort of like the output to effort. So like it takes, if you've ever tried to make three birdies in a row, it's like nine 
perfect shots in a row, right? Assuming you play all par fours. Just make a birdie, right? Just to make one birdie. You have to stripe a tee shot. You have to hit a good second shot, presumably, unless something funky happens, and then you have to hold a putt. You get one stroke back to par, you know? But if you hit, if you block one way right, you know, you're losing right. two strokes automatically, right? So what you're saying is that you should reward yourself for even, you know, hitting a two-footer right in the middle of the hole. In some capacity, yes. And yeah. as far as training through the yips, absolutely. Yeah. But that's more in a practice scenario practice than scenario. it would be live. But yes, live too. Sure. Okay. So what about the live scenario? I've heard you, and tell me if I'm skipping too far ahead, yeah, but uh, but he one thing Lucas has talked about was feeling like he's attacking, uh, on, on playing offense mm -hmm. with the putter in his hand as opposed to playing defense. And I found that interesting because there's a sort of a natural defensive tendency to putting. Whereas even if you are a good putter and you're yep. 40 feet away, you know, you're, you're snuggling it up or you're trying not to hit it 10 feet by, or if you have, you know, on the PGA tour and you have a super fast, quick three footer, you have to be sort of cautious. So tell me about going on the offensive, uh, with something like the putter. Okay. So there's a couple of ways that I, that we talk about with that. And so on, on one of them, we talk about a relentless desire to win through the fundamentals of winning. So mm -hmm. I have the traditional performance training that I do outside of the yips. And that's yes. part of that there. Um, and then there's also, you know, we're going to attack the yips and defeat this thing. It's been kicking our tail for so long, but now we, but part of it too is getting buy-in because They've tried everything. I tried, I tried getting hypnotized and people do this, that, and the other thing. And nothing has that I have seen has created a consistent and effective solution. And that's part of the reason, well, now we can say, so, well, we, you know, Lucas and, and others well along their way, Matzik, myself as an example, like this, this, this works. It's not easy and it's not a short process. It takes a minute because we have to rehabilitate ourselves. It's a it's a training program, mm -hmm. but we want to attack it with that mentality. We're going on the offense and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, you know, kick this thing's, kick this thing's butt. And the, um, okay. But in the, in the, in the more micro sense of the yips, one thing that we'll do is there's something called the roller coaster effect. So the yips, initially you feel that muscle tension as you make ridiculously inaccurate shots you start to go out and you don't know why what's happening. You get what's similar to an adrenaline hit. And it's very similar to, I think it's similar to post-traumatic stress too. So I almost drowned off the side of a submarine one time. I got caught by the prop wash of the submarine, spun out under the water in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, I, I pulled the, <laughs> I pulled the thing on my UDT life vest and it, the actuator, and it brought me up to the surface before I, I went out and I was getting on a helicopter to jump out a few weeks later into the ocean, we call it casting. It's really easy. Anyone can do it. It's really fun. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything in my body's like getting really tight. You know, my heart rate's increasing. My, my muscles are tensing up. Now here I was fine. I remember laughing at myself and smiling, dude, <laughs> telling my body to calm down. Like what's going on here? You know, but what I think's happening now through years of reflection is my nervous system and subconscious is saying, hey, this is similar to an environment to one that's almost killed you. Mm -hmm. You need to pay attention to it. Okay. Now, all I had to do there was make my legs work and fall out of the back of the helicopter, right. right? But when we need to do something that requires fine dexterity in a joint, okay, then it causes issues because any interruption in that joint, in, that, in, that, in the fluidity of that delivery is going to cause 
is going to cause a mechanical interruption. So what you see is the ball will squirt wet high in arm side or and the club face will open in mm -hmm. golf. So it's the same problem, just a different action. Baseball, what happens is as they try to like, man, I got to extend and follow through that. They can't, and the fingers wrap around the side of the ball, and they get the slider spinner, the spike. Same thing in golf. Wow, I got to follow through. I got to extend the putter head. Now, instead of opening up, closes around the side of them, and you see it go that way, and then you know translate that to chipping. I got off topic with the with the so the aggression and the predatory. Okay, so we have a way to manage that roller coaster effect. That's the so I, that's what I call you for the tingling sensation. Can't feel your hands and feet. Now, when people say so, if you're a golfer listening, it feels like I can't feel my hands and feet. It's not because you feel like that's what you're feeling. That's actually what you're feeling. Because when the body perceives danger, it extrapolates the blood from the, vi or the extremities into the vital organs to keep you alive if you were to receive a mortal wound. And because it's perceiving threat, right? And you know, rationally, you know it's not a threat. It's like, okay, it's just construction workers over there watching me. And, you know, it could be a lot of people or it could be certain people that are watching that engage. It's weird how it works. Mm -hmm. and, that, and anyways... So this thing engages, what we don't have is a way to turn it off. And that's what people are taught is, okay, well, just kind of remember this throw when you made when you were 12 and how good that feel and stay in this kind of zen out process. And you're trying to like ward it off and it works a little bit. You can get a little bit better, but you can't play dynamically like that. And you can't play, eventually it's going to get you like when you're pitching, like I could throw and play catch like that a little bit and this kind of, you know, alternate state in my mind but i can't throw pickoffs and field ground balls and pitch and play baseball that way yeah so we bring it back down through this method i call talking to the tension which is much more in depth but similar to that helicopter but then we do the predator prey and we we switch into aggression but the aggression is not target oriented normally in baseball we're throwing through the mitt or in golf we're going to sink the putt or we're going to you know mm -hmm. land it on the green or whatever we're going to divert it from target orientation and into connection. So I'm channeling that predator mentality into connection with the ball where what's so frustrating was once I had made peace with what was going on, I still didn't know the yips or heard of that term, but I was in a bullpen after I threw the record amount of pitches and I knew I wasn't going back in a game. A new coach wasn't going to put me back in, but I had a really good relationship with my pitching coach and our catcher that was in the bullpen. And I went in there to throw, and I didn't feel nervous at all. felt so good. And I got on the mound. I was like, all right, man, just rock and fire. Because I meet guys like that, too, who are like, dude, I don't really get the roller coaster effect anymore. I just can't. I just keep – I'm still shanking them everywhere. It's just involuntary. And that's where I was at in that bullpen. Mm. The problem was I was still trying to throw a strike, okay, mm. instead of trying to gain a quality release. Does that make sense? Yes. So Process versus outcome. There's something called front sight focus when you shoot a pistol. So to shoot accurately, you focus your vision on the front sight of the gun. Now, in reality, when you combat shoot and you get really good, it's a little bit of give and take speed and accuracy. Okay, but that, if you want to shoot accurately, that's what you do and that's how you train. Then you go in a kill house and we'll use simunitions and paint in our, in our guns and they'll put a live role player in there. And this guy goes for a gun and you're engaged and boom, boom, boom. And they'll ask you or you ask them if you're one of the guys training now and they'll say, draw on the whiteboard your sight picture. What did you see? How, how crystal clear was that front sight? You're like, dude, I didn't see anything. I pulled out my gun. I saw somebody shooting at me, so I pulled out my gun and started pressing the trigger as fast as I could, <laughs> right? So why is it hard to retract your focus in a dynamic situation when you just did it on the range over and over again? Because the target is the threat. All the emotion is attached to out there. Mm. And the more times you've gone out there and yipped, the stronger that is and the harder it is to give that up. 
So we're not giving up. I don't teach apathy. And I've heard guys tell me their sports psych told them to be apathetic or care less than they do. And it's ridiculous. One, it's not possible. Okay. And two, even if it was, it would take away the joy of the achievement and winning. So there's no point to going out there and doing it. So we, we, we still have the desire to succeed, but we're giving up mental attention to the outcome and channeling it into right where the mechanical interruption is taking place. So now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it like this. Okay. My visual focus is on the ball. My emotional focus, I've intentionally shifted it into aggression. Tyler Matzik came up with something called a pre-throw thought to initiate an aggressive mental mindset. So, you know, a word or a phrase, I'm aggressive now. And then channeling that predator mentality rather than into the mitt or into the hole, but into the connection of the ball. So I'm diverting it, right? I'm hunting the connection. And you, is that something you can feel? I think so, yeah. Physically? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you bring it down and then initiate aggression. What's, it's, if you're... You can't control what you feel initially, right? If you smack me in the face right now, I'm probably going to be upset about that. I'm going to be confused and angry. I would right? never do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because that's, I'm, it's, it's from the stimulus of the environment, right? Yeah. Okay. But then I have a choice. And so if I think, hey, you know what? I want to reach over and hit him back, but maybe that's not the best choice for me to make right now. Maybe there's a better way to handle this. Okay. So... What I do is it's replacement. Once, once you feel something, it's replace it with what you need. And I think that's what mental toughness really is. Mental toughness doesn't mean you don't feel. You know, Navy SEALs aren't a bunch of sociopaths. We feel everything anyone else does. How fast can you shift your focus and how fast can you transition your emotions into something that is effective to perform well in a high-pressure environment? Mm -hmm. That's what mental toughness is to me, I believe. So are you – is a very conscious sort of – present sort of solution wouldn't you agree like that is a feeling feeling the body going into the body understanding what what emotions or feelings are popping up at the time and then solving it with different emotions that's a a very conscious present solution to what you are saying is a subconscious sort of problem Yes, because you can't really control your subconscious, right? It just does things yeah, for the most does part. Yeah, it dumb uh, shit. I mean, you can train habits and different responses to whatever. Yeah. You know, um, and it can change over time, I guess. Um, you know, for a while, if I hear a car backfire, I'll kind of flinch or whatever. For a while, when I would get overseas, because it's, it's associating it with gunfire. Right. You know, or I might, I always look, you know, I'll look to see where it's at. And it doesn't mean because I'm disassociated and think I'm in a gunfight. I'm just addressing what is being perceived as a threat as I as I get that. Okay. So, but we really only have our conscious mind to battle it. So if you, cause here's what happens is you walk up, guys know what's going to happen before it happens. Right. It's like, okay, everything's going swell. Everything's good. Here's a shot. Oh man. That's one that's kind of in one of those weird places that makes me feel this way. And then, you know, there's this person watching who for whatever reason indicates it. And again, they may not even real, no, have any idea why this certain person, right. You know, causes it to happen and whatever. And I really don't even get into that much cause and effect with players. It's the solution that matters. Like when I can say, there's a lot of revisiting your trauma and sports psychology and it's like, okay, I mean, but so what? Okay, yeah. now we know how, you know, we've connected the dots to this point. We still got to beat this damn thing. So anyways, um, there's, uh, well, I kind of lost my train of thought. That's okay. The, the, I, I, really, I really like the fact that you are going beyond sort of wordy solutions where it's like, focus on the process and, and care less, right? 
Because we, at the end of the day, people who have this problem, and also interesting to note that a lot of them that you're saying do care, right? Because a lot of us that can't seem to get over whatever mental hurdles it is, I don't think just, it, it doesn't seem like there's a consistent way to trick yourself into thinking that you don't care about this. And thing. it is, it's tricks. It's tricking yourself. Okay, so I, and I can understand when there's no bullets in the gun, whether there's real bullets in the gun, but I can't trick myself. I, I know it's reality. Like I yeah. know when there's a bullet in there and it's going to go boom and when it's not. Right. And there's, I can tell myself it's only 60 and a half feet away. It's three to five foot on the putt and it's the same, but it's, it's different and the body's perceiving it differently. And as I trust the process and there's a time and place for that phrase that I think is very valuable, but it's being overused. It's if your process is producing a bad outcome over and over again, then you need to trust the outcome because your process sucks, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how I look at the yips, like nothing's working and we're just going out there and telling people to do the same stuff over and over again. Tap yourself, visualize, you know, um, meditate and box breathe and all this and none of it works for people and these guys are going out there trusting what they're being told and then and then it's not working for them and it's, it's just not right in my opinion so i start, finally started asking myself the right questions i came home from a deployment one day and there was a baseball sitting in my in my, our living room and my parents house and they were in the kitchen or something and i picked up the ball and I wanted to throw it into the recliner. And here I'm, I'm a combat veteran SEAL at this point, and I'm still worried I'm going to throw the ball through the window, you know? So I, I pick up the ball, and I looked at it, and I was like, where is it getting me? And I'm like, from here to here. That was the first right question that I asked myself. And I just started kind of reverse engineering from there. That Now that I had had some life experience and maturity, yeah. I started really reflecting and examining what had happened, what is happening, and then how do you beat it? And I just started putting it together. Um and were all these lessons, were all of these tools, things that you developed in the SEALs? Mostly, they, they're, they, they, what I learned in the SEAL teams provided really good analogies for things like the shooting example. I mean, yeah. we were shooting and I realized that that flinch is, you know, what it was and how it's occurring. I was like, that's when I felt the epiphany, like light was shining down from heaven. Like that's what was happening to you <laughs> in baseball. You know, I was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Maybe I can actually figure out a solution to this thing. Now that I have a better understanding of the problem. Um, and then some of it was through, you know, when we talked about identity earlier when I imploded in baseball, things got really dark for a while. Cause I didn't have a plan B and I just, really wanted to play pro ball and when i when i broke i didn't know how to handle myself i i just didn't know what to do with myself i had no direction nothing sounded challenging to me i loved playing baseball i had no place to play couldn't play it even if i wanted to and it just ate me up so one night i was sitting there and i was reaching for a bottle of whiskey just to plug it and go to sleep and those kind of nights were starting to add up there were nights i just literally couldn't sleep you know, I'd lay there and kind of maybe drift in and out or whatever, and, and, uh, but not really sleep at all. So I stopped and I pushed the bottle away and I thought, okay, I'm just going to not do that, you know? Yeah. And, and then I, I, I was like, what do I do next? And still so full of tension, not, not the muscle tension, but just, you know, like, oh, it's bitter, mm. confused, angry, frustrated. So I stopped and I prayed and, you know, I grew up in faith and everything, but wasn't super impressed by a lot of the men I saw in church. I thought that they would sell their moral courage at the first sign of danger, but always couldn't deny the role of faith in Jesus had played in my life. And so I just tried to connect to my creator, whatever that is. I was like, I'm here. So I come from nowhere. Something made me and it's probably smarter than I am, whatever it is. So I'm gonna try to talk to it, you know, connect to it. So I sat there and I was still, 
And I just tried to feel. I said, help me. I started to cry. And I was like, why? Like, why did this happen? Because if I could just get my head wrapped around the purpose of what I was experiencing, then I could move forward. But I was just stuck. You know, and I, and I think the victim mentality, like we're all victims of something. Are you a victim or are you not? Everybody's a victim of something because life's inherently unfair. Yeah. Okay. But it's when selfless, it's when helplessness and self-loathing drive our decision making. It creates hell on earth. And that's where I was at. So self-pity has no value. And so I had to get off of it, but I just didn't know what to do. So that's where I started was there. And as I, as I sat there and I was still and I tried to pray or just connect to God. And I said, why? I felt these words on my heart. Not, not visibly, not audibly. There was no vision or anything like that. I wasn't in a dreamlike state, but I just felt these words on my soul from somewhere other than myself. Just wait, something better is coming for you. I didn't know what that would be, but in that moment, I had faith that there was purpose to what I was experiencing because prior to it, I thought I lost my purpose in life and I was just going to drift through life in some lesser existence now, you know, not a ball player. Mm. But when I stopped viewing it as having taken my purpose and viewed it as having purpose, for me to be forged into a more capable person is when everything changed for me. And I realized a couple of things is that one, there were some really bad things that happened. I haven't gone into the depth of that and some pretty unfair things that happened. As I said, I don't blame anyone but myself for those things, but eventually I had to look internal. Like how did I help contribute to it? What do I need to learn about myself to move forward regardless of how unfair that might be? So I looked at God and I looked at myself and I realized that baseball defined me. I was dependent on it for my sense of self-worth. You see, that word dependency is the key. I want to value things. There's a part of me that will always be a SEAL. There's a part of me that will always be a ball player. But the dependency on it for my sense of self-worth and ego is what, was, is what changed. So I learned a phrase, what I do should not define who I am. Who I am should define what I do. And the transition that I made that I think helped me be successful at BUDS and have uh, some sort of career in the SEAL teams was that as a ball player, the game, the profession defined my sense of self-worth, whereas a SEAL or training to be one, I tried to allow my sense of self-worth to create my success in the profession. I thought through the good things. You know, I stood my ground and fought as a kid. Uh, I wasn't a bully, protecting myself, protecting others. I, the game-winning hits, the no-hitters. And I thought to myself, man, those things are true. You know, high achievers, we focus on the bad things a lot, the things that went wrong, what we didn't accomplish. Everyone that I've met that, that has accomplished a lot feels that way, mm -hmm. and everybody else looks at them as tremendously successful. So I started thinking about those good things, and I thought, man, you don't need anybody's validation of that. They've already happened. It's true. So just be grounded in the truth of who you are, but channel it into service of team and mission. And that's, I couldn't have articulated that when I was 21 years old, but that's the transition that was made in my heart. Well, you can do a lot with that type of thinking. What I'm trying to understand is why you would then go and try to apply it to the single most demanding, uh, psychologically, physically, just excruciating experience I think anyone can put themselves through, which is buds. Oh, buds, yeah. Why I would want to do that? Yeah. Well, 9-11 was very recent. It was the mm. fall of my senior season in baseball. So that spring when I threw those wild pitches, that was just, we were less than a year out from that. I needed something meaningful to commit my life to. I thought about not, you know, I could get a job and take the path of least resistance and put some money in the bank. And believe me, that thought crossed like, you've been through this hell in baseball. Why go, right, exactly how you worded it. Is, Why literally you, you choose, it, right? choose hell again. <laughs> <laughs> 
But let's say I take that path of least resistance, the comfortable route. Where am I five years from there? Mm -hmm. You know, do I feel any sort of fulfillment? I'll still be comfortable, but it's, I think it was Jordan Peterson who says it's the pursuit of an aim that keeps our soul alive. And I believe there's some science that actually backs that they're finding out. Mm -hmm. And that's what I needed was something that was worthy to pursue something meaningful. And I couldn't think of anything more meaningful to commit my life to as a capable young man. I loved the sense of team. You know, as a top 25 ranking as a mid-major, we had a really close team to play to that level. It wasn't just baseball. Right. You know, we had some, we had some guys who could play, but our team was so close, and I loved that. And I'd been on a few other teams that were kind of like that, and I knew that I would find that probably in a SEAL platoon and absolutely did. Love those guys. That's what I miss every day is the guys. Um, and it seemed challenging. You know, I was a little bit afraid of it. Um, and just like a huge adventure, you know, now we look at Iraq, Afghanistan and these wars and, and the perspective that we have it on this side. But back then it was all new. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, I could be a part of writing history or I can go work, you know, as a manager at the shop down the road or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so that's what I wanted to go do. And my true nature, I think, has always been as a protector and this is a way for me to help protect people is one through the SEAL teams was, you know, to go stop that from happening again um, is how I saw it. And I wanted to, you know, protect our country from a bully, protect innocent people from being harmed. You know, when you watch that second plane hit live on television and people deciding whether they're going to jump off or burn or whatever it is they're going to do, like, I, I was pissed. I wanted to fight about it, you know, provide justice for the innocent. And it was a path for redemption for my failure in baseball to prove to myself that I was who I thought I was, Yeah. you know, yeah. I didn't want to just move into, I, I could not move into life, start a family and whatever else with that. Sure. Sure. You had to get through that. Yeah. What, um, so look, there's a lot of stories about, you know, buds training in general, about the seals in general. What, what is the truth about your experience there going through that process and making it through? How hard was it? It's what they say it is. Yeah. Um, what types of things are you subjected to? Were you? Hypothermia. Well, you know, the numbers on Hell Week are pretty simple. An average class runs over 200 miles during that week. You sleep a total of four hours the entire week. It starts on a Sunday afternoon. You don't sleep at all until Wednesday. That's for two hours. And people are like, oh, you get two hours of sleep. But it's not actually really a good thing because trying to lay down and you're in a little cot in a tent and your hip flexors are cramping and whatever. And then if you do fall asleep, it's wake up. And that was felt like seconds and you're in the water again. You're just better to stay on the move. You know. Um, did you sleep for those two hours? I don't think not really not me. I think some guys did. I remember that part. I don't know how I remember that part, probably because of how miserable I was because you have a you have a moment to sit there and focus on how miserable you are. Cause you're not moving anymore. Mm -hmm. I just remember my hip flexors just just aching and cramps and stuff like that and being kind of relieved when I wasn't soaking wet anymore. And when they said hit the surf, it sucks, man, because you don't want to go get in that water again. But being kind of relieved that we were moving again. It's like, let's just, let's just get going. Let's just get it over with. So, you know, there's that. You know, hypothermia, there's surf torture. You lay in the water. So you're basically in hypothermia, pull out over and over again. But there's no real breaks, you know. You're just, you're always on the move and you're always competing. So it may not look like you're going real fast when you watch it from the outside in on, say, by Wednesday. But those guys are going as hard as they can. You know, it feels like you're going 100 miles an hour. And um, 
Yeah, Hell Week buds and Hell Week all. You know, later on in the teams, there's the. You, you, we all have our hopes and perspective of what you think the SEAL teams are going to be and what you're going to be doing. And not all of that is, you know, lives up to your expectations. And, you know, how could it? Because you, you've built it up to be. Yeah. But, uh, gosh, Buds and Hell Week did. Yeah. What um, What was the closest you came to ringing the bell? It's ringing the bell, right? Yeah, yeah. When you quit? Yeah, you ring the bell three times to quit. Say I quit. Put your helmet on the ground. So I'd like to say that it never crossed my mind. But there was one time when I made it an option, I would say. Now, I never said I want to quit or was thinking about quitting. So as you guys edit this, you got to make sure the context is right on this one, right? <laughs> yes. <I> can... <laughs> he did not uh, quit. He, <laughs> it, was, it, was in the cho- in the, it was a multiple choice, <laughs> and it appeared <laughs> suddenly. Uh, I believe it was Monday morning. We were getting surf tortured. The night before, we had ran about 15 miles, ran five miles, I think, with logs, put them down, ran five miles back, picked up our boats, ran the boats back. The boat bounces up and down on your head as a team. You're racing. We were in surf passage. You're getting crushed by those waves, you know, as you try to row through them. Then we did rock portage, and you land those boats on a big rock jetty while the waves are crashing. It's dark. It's dangerous. That was the one evolution where I was afraid because they just didn't have that much control over it. Ankle snap, you name it. So we got done with that, and then we're getting surf tortured. I never minded surf torture. I was kind of looked at it as like an ice bath. Until now, for whatever reason, it, I don't know if the just – the intensity of the situation or if the water was actually colder that I don't know, but maybe we did more rounds. Of, I can't really remember, but it was, it was hurting. And I remember we had done, I don't know, three or four iterations of it in and out about 10 to 15 minutes, depending on the temperature of the water, they'll measure it. We had done what I thought had to have been the last one. You know, we did another round. I was like, Oh man, the guys are getting up out of the water to quit. And this, and that. Okay. Got up out of that one. I was like, all right, I made it, you know. It's, and buds, you're always suffering, but it's a different kind of suffering. If you're running, you're not freezing, you know. And if you're freezing, you're not running and whatever. You're like, so it's like, all right, we'll move on and do something. I was like, backs, meaning put your backs in the water. And I just somehow just forced myself backwards. And I would sing Time is on My Side, that old classic song, because no matter what they did, they could take my body heat or whatever, but they couldn't take time. The time had to tick and every second's closer to graduation, right? So I just keep that in mind. But now there's no song, there's no nothing. I'm just kind of gritting through it. Got up out of the water and one of the instructors comes up to me. I'm kind of stumbling onto the beach. Can't really feel my hands and feet. Probably got the beginning stages of hypothermia. And they got the bell right out in front of us on the beach. And there's burritos and coffee and warm blankets and a line. And, you know, a lot of guys that I knew were in that line, guys that I looked up to and respected. So helps kind of justify it to you, you know. Now, I wasn't searching it out. It's just right there. You can't miss it. And I'm kind of looking at it and stumbling up onto the beach, trying to get my bearings, get my legs moving. And one of the instructors comes up and he says, hey, man, you're done, bud. It's time for you to quit. Go over to the bell. Quit. There's no shame in it. And I managed to say, negative. (laughs) Everything inside wanted to go get a burrito and some coffee. It's like my mouth was the last filter to just know, you know. And then he looked at me and he said, yeah, yeah. Hey, look, everybody in the class hates you. And it's time for you to quit. Let's go over to the bell and quit. Prior, you ever heard, most people heard the story, burn the ships, you know, that's kind of the mentality I had going in, like quitting's just not an option. And so I wasn't going to make it one. And that was the first time where I, I, I opened up the thought and it kind of went like, well, what would I tell people if I went home? And I had written in my hat and the bill of my hat, which is really super cheesy. You know, I shouldn't say that on camera here, but I mean, some guys would do it. I never really looked at it, but I had written phone call. Like I'm going to make a phone call at some point in this week or at the end of it and see they're successful or unsuccessful back to my mom. 
and I wanted to tell her that I made it, you know, cause she knew what I'd been through and everything else and different things. And so anyways, I was thinking like, what will I tell her when I, if I quit? And I just, the only, the only thing was that these guys who make it through are more badass than I am. They just, I didn't have what it takes. And that was just unacceptable to me. All I ever wanted my whole life was to be in a situation where there weren't daddies contributing to booster clubs, where there weren't all these anomalies in the situation. It was a fair deal. It was hard, but the standard was the standard, and that's all it was. And I thought to myself, I looked at the boat, the bell, and it was the same distance as the my boat crew, where we. This all happens in like a matter of seconds. You know, I'm this, shocked this you even remember battery. this. And uh, but I remember asking him, tell myself, it's the same distance. You can't just lay down here and die. You've got to go to the bell and quit. So if you can go that distance in the wrong directions, you can go that distance in the right direction. So just go there. Mm. Just get to there. Don't think about anything else but getting to your boat crew. And I still don't want to go. So I was like, the question isn't, can you get to Friday with no sleep? It's just Monday. You know. The question is, do you have more? And if the question is yes, then to have integrity and answer that, you know, tell my mom properly, then I need to at least take that step in the right direction. So I did. And then it just, that was that. And nobody hated me. It was they say that to everybody. My yeah. buddies told me later. I was like, you guys all hate me. They're like, no, man. They just told me that a while ago too. Like, so we brought it out real good. It's a mind game. <laughs> it is a mind game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what uh, What do you feel like after that week is over? Uh, very well. <laughs> it's very rewarding. You're pretty wrecked. Your body. You know. Yeah. I thought I was gonna sleep the whole weekend. I slept like six hours, and I woke up. And you're on a mattress on the floor in a room, so you don't you know, convulse or I don't know what and fall out of your bed, I guess. And I'm assuming that's why. But, well, and I got to pee, you know? So I tried to get up to go to the bathroom and I couldn't make my legs work. Like I can wiggle them. I wasn't paralyzed, but they were so swollen. I couldn't walk. And I saw this big empty Gatorade bottle there, like one of the gallon oh, ones. No. I was like, what's that there for? And then it hit me. I was like, oh, they put that there so we could take a leak. <laughs> So uh, we got that, but I went to go take a shower and all I wanted to do was steam out the shower. And that weekend, that day, the showers, the hot water was broken and all we had was cold water. You're joking. And that was the closest I came to crying as uh, during my, my SEAL career. <laughs> <laughs> that is a extra hell week. Yeah. Um, so... So after that, I presume you're a Navy SEAL after you get through that. You go to BUDS and then you go to a four-month training called SQT Jump School and well, Jump School then SQT. When I went through, it's a little different now. Then you go to your platoon and yes, you are a SEAL. Okay. So what, uh, what was your role within that uh, unit? I went to what's called an SDV team. They utilize a submersible a submarine. It fills with water. So you're on dive status the whole time you're in it. And... My role was I got to go to sniper school as a new guy, which was, I was very That's unique, fortunate. No? Yeah, yeah. Well, it sort of was back then. I mean, there were a handful of us in that class, but it had just started, I think, sending new guys to it. Now I think it's pretty common. But um, I was really happy about that and pretty much worked reconnaissance out of the back of that submarine. Was there something ironic, did you feel at the time, about going from not being able to hit the strike zone to a SEAL team sniper? Maybe. Um, I never really felt that yippy feeling doing that job, though. You know, it was in the back of my mind. It was actually more in the back of my mind when we had to throw a grenade. <laughs> Is this going to come about? Because it's so similar to throwing a baseball, right? Oh, no. But I think just the reality of the moment and what's in your hand kind yeah. of overrode any sort of 
And you don't have to really, you know, you're, you're throwing it into this big open space, yeah. at least when you're first starting with but it. But the consequences. Yeah, I mean, if you shank it into your feet, you got problems, right? And you've seen baseball players do that with the yips, throw it straight into their feet, you know? Well. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, so what I'm curious about is there's there's a lot, to, and you've hinted at it already, but a lot of this sort of allure and I don't want to call it romanticism, rom, you know, romanticism, but it, it kind of is around the movies or you see with the, what you hear people say about the seals is, is that team culture is that is the unit, um, the team unit. What is there a specific moment or mission or uh, memory that you have that you think best exemplifies what that thing is all about? I was blessed to be in what I believe and everybody who was in that platoon believes was one of the best experiences you could have in that sense of a SEAL team. And we had a fantastic deployment together. And it was probably, you know, I don't live in any kind of regret or anything like that, you know, go back and whatever. But if I were to go back and relive any two years of my life, it would be that platoon, alpha platoon with those guys. Uh, man, yeah, is it, it was awesome. Is that camaraderie? Is that... Um is that based on successes that you had? Um, what is that? It's trust. And I think trust that is very strongly implemented by the leadership in terms of our LPO and platoon chief and our OIC, our officer in charge. From that level down, everything was about as solid as it could be. And I think that you just had a really very good group of people. There was a lot of adversity that platoon experienced too in the training cycle. We had a, there was a helicopter that crashed, guys were hurt really badly, um, and some other things. And so, you know, when you go through hard times together, well, you build trust. Mm -hmm. How do you build mental toughness? Go do hard things. You know, how do you build trust within each other? Go do hard things together and, and hold the line to the standard. And when I give presentations, I assert that you will reach a higher level of performance by focusing more on others than yourself, even with individual sports such as golf. Mm. And I don't mean that in terms of giving something up. It's understanding that a team first mentality reduces our fear and creates respect and trust and ultimately love. And those are the greatest motivators of aggression. So if you think about it, if you're getting ready, you're getting your combat gear on to go out and go on an operation and you get nervous, it's, you're nervous for your own life and death. What's going to happen to me for the most part? Am I going to live or die when that fear sets in, right? Pre, pr prior to. Now, fear in the moment is a different thing. You know, people are shooting at you or something. But so that, that, that fear is like a parasite feeding off of misplaced concern. If you defer your concern to the well-being of your teammate, it's got nothing to latch on to. Now, can we do that perfectly? No, but it's not that we're that good. It's that everybody else sucks. If we can take it to a level most aren't willing to go by understanding it and discipline fueled by ambition, then we get to a higher level. So we focus on each other. And as you're focused on each other and you interact, you then create the emotions. You see a lot of teams place these taglines everywhere, family, brotherhood, and whatever. And it's a good thing to do, but you have to live it to feel it because that's the only way it works. The action creates the emotion. And then once you feel it, it's very powerful. You don't have to like somebody to respect them and you don't have to like somebody to trust them and you don't really have to like somebody to love them necessarily. But when you create that trust, respect and love or respect, trust and love within each other, you think of it like this. If 
I get people, if you come fight me and you win the fight, you can tell everybody you're more badass than a Navy SEAL. You took me down. This is the third time you volunteered to fight, uh, me to fight you. There today. you go. I, know. I, I don't, don't know why it keeps coming I, up. I don't, I don't want that. About your <laughs> I don't want that problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, yes. Okay, most people won't do it because you're fighting for self-gain, like glory, status, yep. right? Yep. But, and that's what most motivates most people, status, either through, mm-hmm. you know, hey, look at me, I'm a big deal, or through a constant need of affirmation and validation because they don't have that ego and identity solidified like I made in that transition in baseball, mm. all right? So anyways, if you think of it like this though, what if what if I had the person you love the most in the world behind me and they've gotta come through me, you, you've gotta come through me to get to them or you never see them again. I'm fucking you up. There you go. You would Not only would you fight, you would probably find a way to win. Yes. But the problem didn't change. The motivation behind the problem changed. But that feeling you had about that person did not pop out of thin air. It was created by meeting an expectation and a standard over the course of time, right? Mm. So that's how a team works. So how can you apply, just a quick sidebar, how can you apply that thinking to uh, a golfer, an, an individual? Is it for, is that short putt for their family or the, the, to get their caddy paid? Like, how does that work? Right. So it's a little more difficult in golf because it is an, an individual sport, Yeah. right? Especially once you leave the college ranks and you go to the pro ranks, but there's always a supporting cast of some way, shape or form. And it's just having that greater sense of purpose of what you're playing for as well. So yes, that could be your family and what you want to provide for them. We've got to be careful. And that's a whole nother yeah. conversation about, well, now I'm afraid because I don't want to disappoint them. Yeah. Okay. That's so also we, not a great space to be in. Right. And, and there's solutions there, but generally like, Hey, I'm, I'm playing for something greater than myself in some capacity, whether that's, um, yes, the caddy can be a part of it. And some of the pro guys I've talked to, that is it like, uh, you know, Hey, this guy stuck with me, could have left and gone somewhere else, but held the line with me here. And, and, uh, we're doing this together. You know, this is a, this is a team effort. Um, perhaps what, whoever you have in terms of an agent, uh, I've got a close relationship with Mac Barnhart, and I know that he really tries to develop his players on and off of the course so that they're leaving their career in a, you know, in a better place all the way around, uh, not just train wrecked and used and abused. And you know, so keeping people like that that are in your cast, in your heart, and what you're playing for, your swing coach, whatever it is, um, in that capacity – but it's a little bit more difficult. In Matzik's situation, you know, he came into the World Series in the NLCS two years ago, I believe, struck three out in a row, two of which were all-stars. And if you read one of the articles where he's interviewed, he's, his motivation was not trying to not fail. His motivation wasn't necessarily this, that, or the other thing, or for himself. He was like, Luke Jackson is my buddy, man. We're close. And he had a bad outing, and he had been kind of struggling, and, you know, felt like he deserved better and he wanted to, he was like, I was, point is, I'm here to pick up my boy. That was his motivation in his heart. And he started painting corners, 100 mile an hour, well, 99 mile an hour cutters, you know? Mm-hmm. So so I think I, I absolutely understand and I really like that concept of sort of displacing emotion onto something bigger than yourself or, or sort of reallocating it, right? So when yeah. you're painting that scene of you're on, you're on a chopper or something and you're about to get dropped into the middle of what I presume is a very bad situation or a dangerous situation. And you are putting fear, uh, displacing it into sort of your brothers around you. So it has nothing to latch onto. How, how is that possible when 
you know, back to tricking yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you trick yourself that like to say, well, my life is not actually on the line here. Like I, I, I would no. assume that thought pops up though. It's a life and death no, scenario. No, I don't think so. Especially if a bullet snaps by, you know, right. I haven't been shot at a lot, but I have been shot at and barely missed several times, you know, where that guy was shooting at me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, the, and, and most of that took place in, I guess all of that took place in one particular fight. Um, anyways, point is when that happens, yes, you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to experience adrenaline. You're going to experience a level of fear. All right. But if you can trust your preparation due to the attention to detail and relentless effort that you've placed in it, then when you're in that, when you have, when you're in that extreme moment with extreme, you know, things lighting off, then you can trust your memory. I, I could hear, there was at one point, a call went out over the radio, said Jason is pinned down, okay? And I could hear my instructors telling me in their own voices, you know, what it was I should do in that moment. It's like, you already know what to do, you know, or at least what your options are. And it's prioritizing, you know, what the best options are. And as far as that team first mentality, you know, when I looked over at my teammate and I see he's shooting, moving, and he's communicating back to our assault force, he's communicating with me, He's communicating, you know, he's doing everything he can. He's not running away, you know, and there was no doubt that that was going to happen. So a, a lot, it's not like, oh, is he going to run? You know, it's not like a lot of that. That's all pre-built through the standard, you know. Right. Um, but when I look at him and I see what he's doing and how hard he's fighting for me, you know, then it shifts. And I thought about my little girl for a moment and it's like, oh, hell no, man. This is where you wanted to be. So do what you came here to do. Wage war. You see, you can control the action you take next and the legacy you leave behind through that action. So even if you get yours out here, at least let your little girl know who her daddy was and have conviction that there's purpose to the outcome to include death itself. So there was one time I was, when, when I would deploy and it was just me and my wife, I didn't have a death wish or anything, but I never, it never bothered me. You know, you have to have some fear to have focus. Otherwise you just walk around and not make tactically sound decisions and get shot. Mm. Okay. So I like, and I talk about this in the yips is basically, you know, we went 15% if 15% fear, I like to say it, concern for the outcome versus fear. So say 15% is where I have concern for the outcome and 85% freedom, and that's optimal. That's where I'm, I'm able to really just run and gun and, and make really good decisions and execute my action where I'm relaxed but focused with a controlled aggression. That's where we want to be, and that's where that line is. You know, it's, it's, it's not always all, all easy to get there, but so I, uh, when I would... Uh, I was in my barracks one day, I guess you would call it. And when I had my daughter, my daughter was born three weeks before we deployed. So she's a newborn girl. And like two or three months into this, I started getting a little bit defensive, you know, like, man, I really want to get home and see my little girl. I don't want to get mine out here. I want to make it home. And you can't go into a fight trying to not die, you know, or, or trying to not lose. You have to go in to win. And I knew I needed to change that. So I do what I do in those situations. I stopped and I was quiet and I reflected and I thought and I prayed. And as I prayed, these words kind of came on my heart. Are you where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to do? And the answer to that in my heart was genuinely yes. So if the answer to that is genuinely yes, then it follows that you have to have conviction that there's purpose to whatever outcome you receive. If you die, perhaps it's an adverse event that is necessary in your daughter's life to help forge her into a person who can fulfill God's will in her life or, you know, or, or what it is she needs to achieve, or, um, perhaps there'll be men brought into her life that would be better mentors for her and, and along the way, but you can't not just do what you need to do because you're afraid of what may occur and actually did not. Right. 
and have conviction that there's purpose to it. And that was one of the biggest things in my implosion in baseball was believing there's purpose to it. When I got down to the World Series and I watched Tyler pitch and my wife's with me, he strikes some guys out, different different game, but uh, he, you know, he comes in and strikes somebody out or something good. And I bear hugged my wife with tears in my eyes. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I thought at that time, I thought the yips was the worst thing that ever happened to me when I was going through it. And at the time it was, it was dark and it sucked. And I would have done anything to not have it. But now I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me because having lived the life that I've lived, I'd rather be here watching him pitch in the game than pitch in the game myself. Mm. You know, it was fulfilling. How about that? The relationships developed in the SEAL teams through those extreme experiences, what I got to experience, the equipment I got to use, that was where I needed to be. I just didn't know it. And I wouldn't trade any of that. I would not go back. If it says, you know, this pill or that pill, and you'll never know, and that, mm, not doing it. Yeah. We're good. Yeah, I think you, you might have answered one of my, uh, a question I had there, which was, is the mindset when going into whatever battle it may be, um, a, especially for the SEALs, is it a rejection of the idea of losing or failure? Is it a total rejection of that? Or is it an acceptance of all outcomes that allows you to just do your job? Well, I guess if we're looking at it as the fear of death and you were to equate that to the fear of failure. Um, but as you're saying, that may not be failure. It's more of a philosophical understanding of, I think, I can't force the outcome in a sense. Now, when I was younger, I'd have been like, whatever. Even as a SEAL, I'd have been like, yeah, right, dude. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I mean by that is if you and I are to compete against each other right now at something, one of us has to win and one of us has to lose. Mm -hmm. So instead of using the fight example this time, we'll use golf. You are probably going to straight up kick my ass at golf because you're good at it and I've hardly played it, right? So, but there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. We can't force the result, only influence it. So as competitors, we want to influence the result to the greatest degree possible. And we do that by demanding perfection of everything within our control. All right. And the sports psychs have told me before as well, supposed to be pursuit of perfection of everything within your control. I'm like, okay, well you read the books and you know, ours is based on experience. Okay. Demand perfection of everything within your control, eliminate the variables. And now you're stacking the odds in your favor. So, you know, the fundamentals of action, how you do what you do, the fundamentals of mindset, how you think, and the fundamentals of culture, how you interact with each other, come together to produce best possible outcomes. Can you be invincible? No. I, I could patrol through a city where there's alleyways, windows, and doors. I can prioritize those threats and which ones I'm going to pay more attention to. I can set myself up in the best position on the streets for angles and play the odds of, of it all. But at the end of the day, somebody who's untrained could pop out of a space and shoot me in the back. It could happen, you know, but what I can be is hard to kill. I can be very dangerous. So understanding it on that level, yes. Mentally and emotionally, before we go into a mission, no, failure is not an option. We are going to go and we are going to win. Okay. And we're going to leave a, you know, we're, we're coming, we're coming hard, you know, and depending on what that mission set looks like in terms of a footprint, it can be what it needs to be. But yeah, if it, we were to fail and we, you know, it's, then we have a way of analyzing that to gain process improvement in our debrief structures. Uh, what would you say, looking back, if you had to grade your career, um, what would you grade yourself as a SEAL? <laughs> oh man, I don't know that I can <laughs> answer that. Um, I would, uh, I'd, I'd say, uh, I'd say ask my friends. Um, I, I, I think that everything in the SEAL teams is about the team, you know, and if, being, if I was considered an asset to the team, 
in a group that I looked up to so much and gave me so much. I got way more out of it than I could ever give. Mm-hmm. And, and if I have an ounce of respect or was deemed as an asset by those men that I look up to and, and provided so much for me, then I'd call that a win. What, um, my last question, just so we have it for the record, what did, what did the, on this topic, last question about your career in the SEALs, what does the general public get wrong about that group? What, what do you see or hear or watch that um, bothers you? Um, let's just say that, you know, we're getting into questions here that are a little bit off of the reason why I share my background. Sure. So when I first got out of the SEAL teams, I never told anyone really that that's what I did. A lot of people knew, but I provided as a base for credibility to teach the things that I teach. I learned this stuff, mentally tough, through application. And what combat does is it eliminates the clutter. So a way... It's performance, right? It's human performance. You're competing. It's just the ultimate environment because it involves life and death. Mm. But when bullets start flying, a way of executing action, thinking, or interacting with your teammate is either effective or it's not. All the bureaucracy and the nice-sounding phrases and taglines go right out the window. And so through those experiences, me and my colleague that have worked with me have developed this curriculum and this process to help people achieve. And so we're very careful with how we, how we share that background. We, 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 it is not about us and it is not about, you know, it, all it is is using those experiences to help other people succeed and trying to do that in alignment with our ethos and core values of the team and remain honor and respect to the guys who've come before us, the guys that are active and the guys that will come after us, but 20 years or so of war and combat, I wasn't in for 20 years, but a a decade. And then, you know, that guy was in over 20 years and you learn a lot of things about leadership, about human performance in a real world environment. And if we can take those and share them in a way that are in that alignment to help other people achieve, especially avoid the mistakes that we made and overcome the yips and all that stuff, because I've been in that hell. That's why it's meaningful to me. um, I think that's a good thing to do. So I guess without getting into some of the semantics of that question, I would say that know that the guys that are coming out to, most of them are not looking for a massive following or to be to be publicly known. Most, 98% of them, 99% of them, you know, we have a few that are real loud here and there and it only takes a few to make a lot of noise. And so I'm very careful with how I go about it, but 98% of them, 99% of them are exactly what they're supposed to be. And they have skill sets, I think, when it comes to performance that can be extremely helpful to other people, um, whether they go into a business to work for somebody, whether they start their own business, whether they consult on something. They have intangible skills that are very valuable for people. Yeah, in many ways, it is the highest level of human performance that one can achieve, or at least, you know, at the highest stakes, right? So when did you, when did you 
think or see that avenue for you to like create yeah. an education around this? Yeah, I, it was all by accident. I never had any desire to. Like I said, I'm more reserved in nature. I didn't even have a cell phone for a while. My wife made me get one, and we uh, that was for only like two months or so. But I was asked people who knew my background in baseball. And even though I didn't play professionally, you still play D1 ball, you know, so high schools around here and stuff. And then knew my background as a SEAL. And then people who understood the kind of the uh, the, the deeper layers there, where it's like, hey, man, you, you've experienced failure. And then you've also achieved some level of success. Um, so, you know, tell us about it. You know, how can we apply it to baseball? I also, some of my buddies, I met some guys who were playing in the big leagues, Michael McHenry, awesome, awesome guy, extremely good at these things as well. And he helped me develop a lot of the yip stuff too. And we've had a lot of conversations, but I met him and we would go shoot with some guys, uh, Andrew McCutcheon, Garrett Jones, Pedro Alvarez. And as we'd be at the range, they would just ask me questions. So if I didn't play in the big leagues, I could speak the language, haven't played D1 baseball. And so, you know, Hey, when the cameras are on in the crowd, Yankee Stadium, and it's and I feel it, I feel like I can't, like, how do I focus? How do I? So I would take things I learned in combat and just start putting it into words, kind of raw and figuring it out, and then traveling around and working with teams. I applied for jobs and I kept getting turned down. So I, I was running out of money. I put 10 grand on a credit card to fund my business. And this little team, there's a team called Knock High School Baseball up in Pennsylvania, a little bit rural, north of Pittsburgh, and tough kids. And the coach called me after a couple of them had gotten in a fight or something. And I went up there and I worked with them. It's like the third or fourth time I'd ever worked with a team. Drove a trailer with logs and tires and sandbags. Buddy met me down there and we just, we just got after it with these kids. Taught them teamwork, taught them toughness, taught them all the things. They had never won more than a playoff game in the history of the school. And they won the state championship that year. So as I'm tracking the score... They win, you know, they were tied and I lose the feed and my wife's driving she gets somewhere and I get the feedback and they won. And I just, you know, kind of started breaking down a little bit. She's like, no matter what you have, this is, this is what you do mm. for whatever it takes from this point forward. This is what you're going to do with your life. And so from there we started rolling, man, and teams started winning and, you know, it just from the high schools to the colleges to wherever, and just very naturally built my way into here we are. Yeah. What and so where do the fourteen fundamentals of winning come from? Is that your sort of uh, checklist? Or? Yeah, a buddy of mine called and asked if I would talk to the Vanderbilt football team. That was the first time I ever spoke to a team. That was before that Pennsylvania team, and I sat in a room and I thought, okay, what is it that makes us successful? I wanted to provide them. Anyone can come in and motivate you, tell you an exciting war story, right? Tell you to work together as a team because that's how we do it in combat. Well, yeah, no kidding. You have to rely on each other to survive. So, but how does that, you know, apply here? So I wanted to honor the differences in the, in the environment. I wanted to provide them something that they could use on the field. And that was the only way that it would justify utilizing my background and sharing it was I am going to help you be better at what you do, utilizing those experiences. And, you know, and that's really fulfilling as well when they do go succeed. And I, I wrote five of them down. And at the top of my paper, I said, what am I going to call these? And I was like, the fundamentals of winning. And I wrote it on the top of that paper. I still got it in my drawer at home over 10 years now. That was 10 years ago. Well, nine and a half. I've developed it into the 14. And it's been a little more, a little less. I've got it where it is now, where I want it. Can I ask you about a few of them? Sure. Um, what is toughness? You've answered it a couple different ways, but like, what is 
the definition that you came up with. So I separate mental toughness and toughness. Toughness to me, I believe, is an ability to take pain. Okay, it's uh, it's not pushing people around when you know you can win and you're bigger, stronger, and faster. It's an ability to take pain. I stole this from a podcast. I don't remember exactly which one. Again, I think it was a Jordan Peterson podcast. But it's we suffer well to grow in character. Growth in character makes us more capable. More capable people can achieve more. And then I'll add this in. I think through that achievement, the lessons learned along the way, and what we're able to produce in it, we can help other people, and that's what provides fulfillment in our lives. We had a saying in the SEAL teams, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. The first part's literally true. The second part isn't, but how we suffer is. And that's mm-hmm. what that is saying is like, hey, man, you, you, you got a choice here. And you can sit there all day long. Everybody's going to suffer. That's a part of life. And you can sit there all day long and you can focus on whose fault it is with that victimhood mentality of helplessness and self-loathing. But where is it going to take you? Nowhere. That's why it has no value. Yeah. Right? People who achieve understand their experiences are unique to anyone else's. And it's, what am I going to do about that? All right. And what, what am I going to make of it and believe that there's purpose to it? Yeah. You know, I, I heard um, Stephen Colbert say that I saw a clip, an Instagram clip of him say that um, he's most thankful for the things that he wished most wouldn't have happened. Sure. Because existing is a gift and uh, existing is the gift, but to exist means to suffer. So if you follow that logic, then um, then to exist, then to suffer is to is a gift. So my dad, I was 12. I was pitching against a team I hated, our rival team, next city over, and they, they beat us every year. We never beat them a single time in the four years we played them. And I walked, I, I struck out two guys, walked the bases loaded, walked in a run. I was throwing pitches over the plate. The umpire had a kid on the other team. Or, or some sort of relationship. Seems like a conflict of interest. Yeah, I know, right? And it became very apparent that this is what was happening. So my dad calls timeout. I'm walking off the mound. I'm starting to cry, holding up the ball. But he grabs me by the shirt, and he shoves me back on top of the rubber, and he's pissed. I'm like, Dad, why are you pissed? Like, I know you're hard. He's hard on me, but in a good way. He passed away this summer. and um, But he... Um, I was like, man, he shoved my back this time. You know, like, this, this one's really not fair. This one's not my fault, Dad, you know? And he looked at me, and he said, Hey, man, you're the... What do, what do you want me to do? Everybody in the ballpark knows what's going on. This guy's full of it. Everybody knows it. But I have no control over that, and neither do you. And if I put in somebody else, they're going to have to come in and deal with the same problem. And you're the best pitcher on the team. And it wasn't daddy ball. I was. Everybody wanted me up there. He's like, your buddy's going to have to come in and deal with the same problem. So you want to go in the dugout and cry, or do you want to pitch? I was like, I want to pitch. He said, good. Then stop crying and figure out a way to get people out. And you see, if I go into the dugout and cry, I'm still going to suffer. Mm-hmm. It's still hard. You have to choose your heart, right? I forget who coined that phrase, but choose your heart. And that's still a hard day, but all it does is grow bitterness and resentment. I'm going to complain. Rightfully so, complain and blame the umpire. But where does it get me? Nowhere. If I stay on the mound in defiance, one, I hold him more accountable by simply doing the right thing and exposing it. And my ability to control my emotions and focus and courage and toughness grow. And so what makes toughness virtuous is when you take pain for someone else, I think, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, what does understand sources of confidence mean? So where does confidence come from? Yeah, I do an hour long session on this with guys typically, but I think I'm going to do a, a, a two minute or less, a two minute drill here on it. But I think confidence is certainty. It's, it's when we feel certain in our ability to produce. And that certainty is when we feel relaxed, but focused with a controlled aggression. And if we can get there, we increase our odds of success. 
So our certainty comes from where we place our trust or what we value most. And we tend to place our trust as humans naturally in critics, what other people think and say about us. Mm. And we allow them to imprison what we believe we're capable of accomplishing. And we place our trust in the low odds of accomplishing a difficult task. So if I placed all my value in the people who said, hey, you're not going to make it through SEAL training because you imploded in baseball due to a mental problem, right? Um, then, and if I placed all my trust in, hey, eight, eight, you know, 135 of you guys are going to start, 20 are going to be left after hell week, then I would have never even started. And, um, you know, but I, I think that everybody is born with the ability to accomplish something great that's in alignment with their passion and interest, you know, something that's meaningful to them and, and there's purpose to everyone's life. And people will give you a thousand reasons why you can't do something. Winners find an excuse to win. They just need one. And the low odds, those are not defining characteristics of our capability. They are natural properties of difficult tasks. Any, anything hard is going to attract critics and low odds. That's what makes them special, worthy of pursuit and rewarding when we overcome. You know, it's, the, it's, it's overcoming the struggle that creates the reward. So we want to earn trust in our preparation, attention to detail and relentless effort in each other. If you have the opportunity to select who your team is, you want to start with high character. That's why we have Hell Week. You know, they break you down into your emotionally, physically, and, you know, mentally exhausted. You know, you think you're, think you're dying at some point, you know, and the guy that can reach down and find more and help the guy next to him, that's what they're looking for. We never sacrifice character for talent. Talent's worthless if it drops its gun and runs away, and character's priceless when it's time to hold the line. We can teach anyone how to shoot, you know? Mm. So, um, and then conviction and purpose. So you could have perfect preparation and you could have flawless character of people on your team. Not really, but if you could, it still doesn't guarantee the outcome because the outcome of the event is in the future, which naturally makes it uncertain. So how do we have certainty in an uncertain outcome? The only way I've found to answer that is we can't be certain what the outcome will be, but we can be certain there's purpose to every outcome or value to be gained from it. That short-term failures are necessary to produce long-term success. Now that takes an element of faith, but it's not blind faith. It's by clear observation, by all the examples I just provided. You look at Matzik's story, Glover's story, my story, your own story probably, right? All of Michael Jordan's story, you name it, right? There was, there, was, there was that, and then there was the other thing. You had to believe there was purpose to it and allow it to motivate you. Now, that doesn't mean we become apathetic and we just rely on hope. Hope is a beggar. We got to be on a war path and go hunt it down because God helps those who helps themselves. But I think that if we're doing all of that, I do know this, even though my life went in a direction I didn't know it was going to go, if we do the right things, the right things work out. Mm. Even if you don't know exactly where you're going. So faith and confidence kind of maybe go hand in hand? At least in terms of prior to competing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think so. So that's how I go through confidence. There's other thing we do high pressure composure to bring it back down, all sorts of stuff. But yeah. That's how I would go through confidence. We can't give them all 14 because you got to talk to Stonewall solutions, uh, stonewallsolutions.com. You got to call Jason for all 14 of these. But one thing I did want to get, uh, rule number 13 was failure analyzing, yeah. which I think is big for golfers. Is there, what, uh, what are some practical ways that we can analyze our failures a little bit better? Yeah. Think, uh, think through, Fundamental inconsistencies. So what is it that's within my control that I can adjust? Mm. So I'm shooting on the range one day. We're doing some like speed shooting. This one was pretty good, you know, and my buddies are beating me and they're giving me a hard time. And I was just head to toe analysis, you know, what's going on. I realized my left foot was a little more open, causing my natural point of aim to be a bit off. And my pinky was kind of resting on the grip of the gun rather than pressing into it like I normally would. Clean those two things up, started getting rounds back on target quickly. 
and whatever, rather than kicking over the water cooler, feeling sorry for myself, getting a fight with somebody or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, so the other thing is uh, weaknesses. Identify weakness. That's an uncontrollable disadvantage, some sort of power our opponent may have that we do not. Perhaps they drive the ball further than you do, and you're just not going to catch up with that that day because they have more power. And I think maximum focus plus maximum um, effort to create maximum amount of opportunity. And when that opportunity arises, attack it to force pressure upon your opponent. And if they're not mentally strong like you will, they will go from that proactive nature of attempting to win to that reactive nature of trying to not lose. And that's going to make them more susceptible to mistakes. Mm. But you want to create it upon them through what you're applying, right? And um, I've got stories and stories and stories of how I've seen that play out. You know, you may get beat every one or maybe barely hanging in there, and then the next thing, boom, man, one play in football, one pitch in baseball, one shot in golf, and the whole thing switches. You know, the momentum completely changes. And then the last thing, the most important one, high achievers do this, and my dad told me, don't be your own worst enemy one day. And it was like, that was really profound because, you know, for me it was, it was more, you know, it wasn't like that all the time, but it was so, forgive yourself. Eyes up, next target. You know, it, it put it away. Everybody fails, so you're not the first one. But when you have that analyzation process and a way to go back and sharpen your, the blades of your sword or create new weapons, you now have something. And you got to look forward because if you remain in the past, oh, that last shot and this, that, or my last round, you're going to stay there in that guilt and frustration and everything else. Until you look forward, then you'll start feeling a chance for redemption, aggression, defiance, all the things you need to compete well. Right. Yes, well said. I am going to have to listen back to this interview multiple times because there's a lot of great information in here. What, what, how far along do you think your, um, how much more is there to add to the theories that you're putting together, especially as it relates to golf? I mean, I know that yeah. you mentioned earlier that this is a process. This is a rehabilitation process to get people back to where they want to be. Um, how much more information is there, do you think, to be discovered on the, this topic? The, the yips is a rehabilitation yeah. process, yes. for sure. Yes. And, and on the mental side, too, I tell people, you know, if you really want to gain knowledge here, I mean, I can come give you a keynote, but the, a speech is a speech, and you, you forget half of it when you walk out. Mm -hmm. You know, the best way is like weight room training, periodized gains over time. And so we, we train a little bit and a little bit and a little bit so you've mastered the knowledge. And unlike sports psychology, I don't try to keep you around as a client for the rest of your life. I train you up to get to where you need to be, and then hopefully you pass me on to someone else because I just did a hell of a job for you, and you're kicking ass, right? Mm. That's the whole point of it. So the other thing is, so on the yip side, I've been holding off on the book because I, w I wasn't sure what the answer to your question was on that. And I think right now the foundation is there to where I'm going to go ahead and start working. Because as I worked with players, I, I, would, th I would think of more things. You know, I would right. find different ways of delivering it, different ways of saying it, develop new methods in the back and forth, uh, tweak it a little here and there. And it's as good as it's ever been right now. And I think that it's pretty stable and it's probably start, start time to get some of this into print to help people out. Very, very exciting. I will read that. Please send me a copy Thanks. If, uh, when you do it or, or I'll publish it. Um, uh, I'll leave you with this and thank you for the time. Um, lots of time today. But if you had the ability, knowing what you know now, to sit down and talk to the 21-year-old Jason, where would, you, where would you start with him? Man, that's a tough question, you know, because there's not a lot I would change. I mean, there's things I could have done differently to avoid the problems yeah. that I would have had, but that's how I learned them. Mm -hmm. And then that's turned into everything else. So I really don't know how I would answer that question. And people answer, you know, I've gotten that question at least once <laughs> in the last week. 
but I would probably say just in general, you know, no matter what happens around you, I mean, if I could tell you more, more of the depth of my personal story, what I actually experienced in college and everything from, you know, whatever it was, uh, but you know, be grounded, be grounded in that, in that ego. I was reading something in the Bible that said, true love drives out all fear. And I couldn't understand. It. I was like, how does that mean? You know, I can love and I'm still, I can still be afraid and whatever. And I started thinking about the ego. I was talking to a friend of mine when I was having some of the struggles that special operators have sometimes. And I found myself, I really looked up to this guy. I mean, he's accomplished all the things at the highest levels you can get to, not in terms of officers. I mean, in like war fighting capabilities, guys was very well revered in the teams and I was talking to him and I found myself starting to tell him a story and I thought to myself why am I telling him this story and the answer was because I wanted his approval you mm -hmm. know what I mean and it's like dude I already have it he's asking me to come speak at his retirement like what <laughs> what else do you need and so I caught myself there and that's the ego in play yeah right so I thought I thought about that and I thought you know the ego can be in terms of arrogance and I saw some guys at Bud's like that. They wanted to go home and tell people at the bar they were Navy SEALs, you know, and, they, and, and then they couldn't get through the weak moments and they quit. Not all quitters are that way, but uh, there's some really good dudes that just don't make it. Um, but, but he was. But for most of us, it's, it's the other way. You know, it's that constant need of affirmation and validation. And that's what I would have, if I could have had a better understanding of that when I was younger, because I think that's what it truly means to be reborn. When we, and you gotta have an ego, but in a sense, let the ego die um, and be grounded in the truth of who you are, knowing who you are, what you want, why you want it, then and only then can you truly love others. And then they have no power over you mm. and you're not afraid. Ego is a hell of a thing. It is. It's a hell of a drug. Um, maybe we'll do another podcast on ego, but thank you, Jason, for the time and the knowledge and, and thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you guys, man. I appreciate it. It was yeah. awesome to be here with you. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>